This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Every person has to be born twice in their life. You've got to be born twice. It's not enough to be born once. Each one of us was born into circumstances, a home, a family, a community, ways things were done. There were things that were done right and beautifully, and there's things that were done wrong and ugly. As we were these little children, we grew up in these homes, and we were like Play-Doh. We were shaped, sculpted by these experiences. But we were sculpted by these experiences with no one to talk to about it. Meaning if you as an adult today went through a difficult experience today, you know, you're smart enough to know that you call a friend, talk to your wife, Speak it out with someone, a chavrusa. How many of us have sat with a chavrusa and said, before we start learning, can I just like get this out? Because as adults, we know when you let it out, it goes out. But we were all shaped as children. In homes and circumstances, as I said before, some of it was healthy, but some of it was not so healthy. And especially if you're a child or a descendant of a Holocaust survivor, of people who were tortured and went through hell, because the human nature of a person who goes through hell is that they disassociate. They disassociate with themselves. It's the only way to survive difficulty. But when you disassociate with yourself because you're stuck in an airplane that the AC went off and they're having trouble with the plane, you're sitting there for two hours. You'll disassociate, but you'll reassociate once the thing starts taxing. But from the torture of those years, the disassociation for many was, was total. And when they got back, in order to, to uh, make a victory over, over Hitler, they rebuilt Yiddishkeit for us. And we owe them that, but on the other hand, the sense of I, associating with an I, that you have an I inside yourself, for many of them it was gone. And so there are whole generations of people who were, not, who were raised without full expressions of love. Full expressions of love. In fact, you know what people often do? is when they have dysfunction, like for example, not showing love in all the different ways, because there's five ways of showing love, which is wor uh, words, gifts, touch, quality time, and last is service. That's the one our Olam does. Everyone does service. And I remember I had a, I had a girl from uh, Muncie in Israel from a very Hasidic home. She comes up to me in, uh, in T-shirt and jeans with a thick Yiddish accent. And I asked her, said that, what, what happened? She says, oh, thank you very much. You can just set it up right here. 
So I asked her, what happened? She said, my mother never said I love you. And so, about a year later, I was teaching the Possible Youth Seminar. I run the Possible Youth Seminar. That's actually why I'm in Muncie right now. Um, we have a men's seminar coming up this Sunday and a women's seminar coming up Monday. And it's something that all of you should think very, very seriously about. I come here once a year to do this seminar. I come to Brooklyn many times a year, but Muncie, it's once a year. This is that once a year. It's Sunday noon till 10 p.m. It's Monday from 7 to 11 p.m. Tuesday and Wednesday from 7 to 11. All non-work hours, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And we'll spend 24 hours together doing super intensive work. But anyway, I was running a seminar in, uh, oh, the women's seminars, uh, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. every day, uh, starting Monday. So the women's is Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, from 10 a.m. till 4 p.m. They're on six hours a day, and the men are on uh, 10 hours the first day. There are breaks. <laughs> Mincha. And there is, uh, and then there's uh, four hours a night after work. And then Thursday, I fly to Eretz Yisrael. I land to Erev Tishabav, and we have an all-night food meditation in my house. Where every year on Tishabav, we do an uh, all-night food. Med- Sorry, did I say Tishabav? Uh-huh. I'm coming for that. <laughs> That's all you need is an all-night food meditation on Tishabav. <laughs> anyway, but you can invite people to that. People are coming over around 9 p.m. after their meals for the experience anyway I was running a seminar in Brooklyn and uh, my assistant says there's a couple waiting outside to speak to you I'm like who are they I said bring them in so I bring them into the office and here's this couple from Muncie with very thick Yiddish accents and I recognized who these people were they were the, the parents so I said to the lady, I said, listen, you ever say I love you to, the daughter, to your daughter? She says, I took her all over town for two weeks. I took her shopping. I said, but did you ever tell her I love you? She says, I took care of her. I cooked for her. I made her all of her favorite foods. I said, but did you ever tell her I love you? And she goes on and on and on. I got her a driver. And she went with the driver, and I went with the driver, and we bought for her a whole new wardrobe. And I said, did you ever tell her I love you? And at that point, her husband reaches over and he says, Rabbi, we don't say those things. And then I looked at her and I said, you better learn how if you ever want to see your daughter in a skirt again. You see, if you don't have an I, you're never going to have an I love you. And so you'll always be relegated for doing things for people. But not every kid you're going to have is going to be interested in service. Some want quality time. Some want love from uh, words, compliments, the actual I love you. But it's interesting what we do is the, I, I work a lot in a very Hasidic situation. And what we do is whenever there's dysfunction, we turn it into our hashkafa. So they've like created a hashkafa. We, we don't say that. That's, a, that's the realm of dysfunction. Dysfunction always becomes a hashkafa. We turn it into some kind of tzidkis, a derech. Dysfunction turns hashkafa.
we all have to be born twice in our lives. We're born into a situation where we didn't get it out. We hold it in. All of us who have children, we know they've come home from school with those big eyes. And you know something happened that day. But they're not talking. You can't pry it out of them with a crowbar. They're not talking. And they hold it in. And you want to know what's going on? I'll tell you exactly what's going on inside those big eyes of your kid. Is he's taking what happened outside of him. And he is internalizing it as who he is. It becomes who he actually starts to think that he is. In fact, it becomes a whole story about him. And so a kid who was left in shul by a father who was a little busy, more than once, might have a thought of being worthless, unimportant, not special, doesn't matter. We're sitting up close, anyone who comes late. Can you guys, you guys mind sitting up close, please? Please? Pretty please? Just a little closer, please. As close as you can. This whole inner space, this great space here. I don't bite. And so what happens is we develop a a belief about ourselves. It becomes our life story. It becomes how we actually see the world. Because there's a world out there, but you're experiencing your world through lenses. And you're wearing the lens of your story. So every person you meet is an, is, can either be an amazing interaction, but it very likely could be a very uncomfortable interaction where your story is neur, hoser neur. It brings your story back from your childhood. And so meeting people is dangerous. It can create all, it can go as far as creating social anxiety. Social anxiety is sourced in that story. It's like we have a 50-inch wound on our side that needs immediate emergency care to have stitches. And every person we meet is holding a bag of salt. Now, we all know intellectually that 95% of the people you meet are not holding a bag of salt. Most people are Rahmani B'nai Rahmani. Yidna Rahmani. But when you exist inside your own lens of your own story, so then all you sense is this person's a potential danger for me. And it's not just that. We work vibrationally. People have a vibration. And when you develop a vibration of stay away. Well, people will stay away without you having to say anything. But 
it goes even deeper, is that our story from the circumstances of our childhood becomes our vibration. I once stood in a line in Israel, and there was a little lady in front of me, and the guy behind the counter looks at me and says, Next, how can I help you? I said, Don't you see the little lady in front of me? She's next. And the lady's already like this. She's like, Please go ahead. Because her story, I don't know what her upbringing was, I never met this lady in my life, but her story was, I'm invisible. And no one saw her. It becomes a vibrational reality that even the guy behind the counter staring at the lady missed her and went to me. Now, I wish it were just our story that was of issue. But what happened was, based on the circumstances of your upbringing, in your house, in those circumstances, in your community, with those grandparents, great-grandparents, children, siblings, older siblings. For example, a kid who's got a sibling two years older, a boy two years older. So what do you do when you're five years old? You're like, oh, when I'm seven, I'll show him. Then you turn seven, how old is he? He's nine. He's showing you. I'll show him when I'm nine. How old is he? Eleven. He's showing you. It never ends. It becomes a vibrational reality of not good enough, not as good as, and then everything is a challenge. Everything is a challenge. You try to open a Gemara, it's a challenge. Because you see the world through that lens. So good luck with Tosfos. When your lens is idiot. But it would be dealable maybe dealable if you only had that story from your upbringing. If it was only that story, maybe that would be dealable. But it gets much worse. It's because whatever your story is from your upbringing, you had to create a separate story about you that you would show the world so that no one would ever know about the 50-inch wound. And so instead of getting stitches for that wound, we put a band-aid, a little butterfly band-aid, to hold it together. For example, the guy, that guy who saw himself as an idiot growing up with all these older brothers would become what's called a hacker in shul, or a know-it-all, or a guy who always has to be right. You create a separate cover-up story about yourself. A separate narrative about who you are that becomes your personality. And then everyone you meet, everyone you interact with, including your wife and your kids and your parents and your siblings and your friends and the people in shul, all people ever get is some cover-up, personality move like you're playing chess and the king was about to get checkmated 
And so you moved around your chess pieces to make some kind of personality move to ultimately protect yourself from your story. But the crazy thing about this whole story is that it's not true. Your story's not true. I hate to say it to you guys. I know you've got a story. I'm sure you'd love to tell it to me. It could be you've even hired people for 200 bucks to tell it to them. Why do you think it costs 200 bucks to tell a shrink your story? Because that's how much it costs to hear such a crazy, stupid story. They're not willing to hear your story for less. I worked as a therapist. I was, I was working for 100 bucks an hour. And I noticed I started canceling. <laughs> so I moved it to 150. And I, I noticed a few weeks later I started canceling those appointments. So I finally switched it to 200. I noticed I stopped canceling at 200. <laughs> I mean, you basically have to pay me 200 bucks to hear your story. Because <laughs> the story's not true. If it were true, it'd be amazing. Like, I, I'd pay you 200 bucks for something true. Give me something real of who you really are, of the Selim Elohim. Of the awesome, awesome being that God made you to be, I'll pay you 200 bucks. But to hear some stupid story because of your sibling order and not getting picked for a basketball team or getting embarrassed in school or getting schmiced by a rabbit or even much worse traumas, even serious traumas, serious traumas. That everyone would say, oh, that guy, yeah, that's his story. Well, no, there's nothing true about the story. Yes, something happened. For sure, some, for sure something happened. But can I pronounce the word happen different? Happened. Yes, something happened. It's over now. And you would say, oh yeah, you think it's over? It didn't just happen once, it happened this time, and then it happened that It constantly happens. And the answer is yes. When you create a vibrational energy of a certain story, then everyone reacts to that vibrational energy and they feed it right back to you. It's the nature of creation. The creation is, fed, is set up as a feedback universe. Hashem made this world feed back your energy. Which means that whatever your story is, when you were the little kid with the big eyes who something happened that day, once that becomes your story, you recreate that story. And everybody cannot help it. It's almost like you're, you yourself are abusive because you're sucking everyone into your story. So people would normally be nice, could be abusive, just because you have a story of being a victim. Someone with a story of being a victim will pull out the spectrum of behavior called abuse from someone who would never abuse somebody. But someone with the word victim 
as their story can pull abuse out of the nicest person. They will get a ticket every time they're pulled over. Every time. They'll also lose stuff and sometimes stuff will get ripped off. And it's all their vibrational energy. But it's just a story. How long you want to be telling yourself stories? How many more years you got to tell yourself this story? You like the story so much? It's such an interesting story. It's such an inspiring story. So this is about the point where I like to quote the black dudes from the city. <laughs> Ain't nobody got time for that. You can try that if you want. <laughs> Ain't nobody got time for that. Try it. Ain't nobody. Oh, you're not going to try it? What is this, Muncie? <laughs> you guys are like afraid of your own shadows here. <laughs> Muncie people are so different. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I have to say that I love doing the seminar here because when I run the seminar. What? You're saying it wrong. Oh, how do you say it? Yo, man, they ain't happened. Gotta, gotta get a little shaking. Oh, sorry. <laughs> ain't nobody got time for that. <laughs> I like saying it because the last word is D A T. Yeah. Ain't nobody got time for that. So. You don't have time for that. Your wife has definitely no time for that. This woman, your wife, was raised as a little girl and she dreamt of being her Kala her entire life. She just wanted to be a Kala her whole life. And that some man would like take her away and take care of her and be her husband. And she, after years and years and years of jealousy... Over time, she had to fight her siblings over her father's attention and over her mother's attention for her father. After years of fighting, she'll finally get her man where she gets the attention. And instead, all she got was your story. The disappointment is so deep. It's crushing. It's not just that you don't have time for that. She doesn't have time for that. Your kids, another generation, you'll either give them the nutrition they need and to create the health and well-being that they deserve for being brought into this world. You were entrusted with them. You're their parents. God entrusted you with them. But instead, what they get is their story. And the wild thing is, when do you think most people's stories ended? When do you think people, most, meaning most people's story, once the story was properly in place, how old do you think, what do you guys say? What do you think the average kid is once his basic story for the rest of his life is in place? How old would you say? What would you guess? Nine. Nine. I, mine was ten. Uh, six. Many people, Four. 
depending how dangerous the house was, it might have been three. And then, of course, there's some really horrifying situations that are even younger. And so I want to ask you a question. When my father calls me, and I pick up my phone, can I borrow a phone? You got a phone for me? Someone give it. Mine's sealed, at least. (laughs) Phone rings. Ring, 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 ring. Let's just say this is before caller ID. Because if I saw my father in color ID, I wouldn't pick it up. <laughs> this happened for over 20 years. Hello? Yeah, hi, Dad. Um, yeah, I can't speak right now. Yeah, I'm sorry. No, I, I got to go to Mincha. Yeah, I know it's 12.30 in the afternoon. <laughs> I got to go. Bye. Over 20 years it was like that. You know what I call that? I call that orphaning. You know what orphaning is? <laughs> orphaning is when you kill someone before they die. Because for me, my father, when he spoke to me, he always speaks money, he always speaks success, he always speaks how it's a bit critical on responsibility stuff. And I feel like I'm nine years old. How long are you going to spend on the phone with someone who makes you feel like you're nine? And so I hung up and it was justified. And as long as I'm paying the therapist, they'll agree. It's downright abusive. But I want to ask you guys, When I was 33 years old, hanging up the phone with my father, who made me feel like I was a six-year-old little boy, how old was I when I hung up the phone? 33 or six? Six. I was running a company. I was speaking internationally. I was a father with a bunch of kids. Six years old. Because when you're living from your story, when your life generates from the story, you're six. And these types of interactions are happening at work, and they're happening in your marriage, and they're happening in your parenting. Every father in this room knows how scary bedtime is. We're sitting up close, please. Excuse me. Uh, We're not sitting in the back. I know it's Muncie, but please... (laughs) Just please stay up front here. Thank you. Just grab a seat and bring it up front. I said that I actually love Muncie because when we do the seminar work, I find that the more distant or cold, the more warmth inside when you get in. There's even more warmth inside. Beautiful, beautiful warmth. So it's the same when I've traveled in the world. You know, you go to Southern Europe, and everyone's so warm in Spain and France, Portugal. They're all so sweet. And, you know, you go to their houses and stuff, but after a while, they just kind of 
medium. But when you go to Northern Europe, to Norway, Sweden, Copenhagen, those areas up north, they're so cold. But when you get in, they're so warm. They'll go to the end of the world for you. When we ask for a certain amount of money for a job we want to have or a product we're selling or a deal we're making where it's going to be how much you're going to get, what will be your cut, you've got to make sure that the man who's making that deal is 33 or 45 or 76 and not 10. I tell the men all the time when they come to my seminar, I say to them, they're like, they're a little reluctant to slide their card for, you know, hundreds of dollars, but I tell them, like the ones who look more reluctant, I tell them, I promise you it's going to pay for itself by day four. And he says, you mean I'll have that many tools? I'm like, no. The amount of money you will have made when you stop letting a nine-year-old run your business by day four you will have made way more than the price of this. And it's happened over and over again every summer. Every summer. And we had a couple of rechim in my last one in Brooklyn last month. And uh, they weren't working. They were not working people. Um, by day three, they had raised $20,000 in unex- totally unexpected things. And by day four, there's only four days summer. By day four, they got to seventy thousand dollars. These guys. I just had a guy in Israel. He did the seminar. He went from ten thousand dollars and a basically a failing eyeglass company, a storefront. And within a month after the seminar, he was at eighty thousand shekels. And he went from ten to eighty, at an eighty percent growth in one month. And he just came back to do the seminar because he's thinking he loves it so much that he wants to become a coach. We have coaches. So he wants to coach it. They're life coaches who work there. So he wants to learn to coach. And so, but he came back. He had to do the seminar again. He doesn't really understand it quite yet. So he comes in again. By the fourth day, he landed a five million shekel investment. Five million shekel investment. And then he takes... And then... And the guy comes, not only gives him the investment, gets two tickets to China, the guy's coming with him to China. And you know what he does? He says that he used to be, one of his strategies, remember I talked about the band-aid? One of his band-aids was to bulldoze everybody. He bulldozed. And it turns out, the week that the guy got the tickets for China, his parents are coming into Israel. And he's going to have to leave his wife and kids for two weeks. You know what he did? He went to everybody, including all his children. He said to little kids, he says, if you want me to stay, I'll stay. I will give this all up for you. He, went to, he called his parents. He said, listen, I've got an opportunity of a lifetime to go to China, but I know you're flying to Israel. If you want me to stay, I'll let this go. He said to his wife, they were blown away. This guy's a bulldozer. And he suddenly parked his bulldozer and he became human. You see, most of our personal growth doesn't last, Lamaisa. 
you'll notice that all this farm you've read, you might have gotten inspired for a little bit. You might have had a bit of a sayuris for a couple days, maybe a couple weeks. But you'll notice it never really lasted. And the reason it never lasted was you were trying to put new information on an old story. And trying to slap new information onto an old story is not effective. And now comes the Musr. I hate to be so strong, but you all seem like from Eden. And I know I'm Hasidish and shouldn't say such strong Musr, but I'm going to say something strong. Don't think for a second. Don't think for a second. <coughs> That when you get upstairs to Oilamamis, that God hands you a microphone to tell your story of why things turned out the way they did. It's not an open mic club up there. You don't get to go up there and tell your story. And you want to know why? Because it's called the Oilamayemis. They don't call it that for nothing. The only thing that has any currency there is Emis. So if you want to bring up something that happened, you could, but I don't think you should. Better not to mention it. Because it happened. Thanks. I'm starting to get some life out of you guys. Let's try it together. It happened. Duh. <laughs> Duh. It's like those guys who say <laughs> as if it has a shva under the dalit. It happened. So, and so you could get upstairs as most people do. The majority of human beings will get upstairs. And they will have a massive, massive litany of allegations. Mostly about their relationship to their wife. The rest about their relationship to their children. A whole bunch about what you could have done versus what you did do. Because how many of us are wearing a straitjacket to keep the salt out of the wound? I spoke earlier about the salt of the wound of social interaction, meaning that guy could put salt. But how about starting a business and failing? How about investing in something and losing your dough? It's a 50-stitch wound called failure. And every single endeavor you'll ever try will have salt on it. And so what will happen if you're like most people is you won't bother. Hey, where's my guitar? I brought a guitar. Do you guys want to do a little kumzitz after? Yeah? Sing some nigunim? Why am I thinking my guitar? So I play, a, I play a Taylor guitar, but I have a really nice Taylor in Israel. And 
when I fly with it, which I stopped doing, this is my New York guitar, but when I fly with it, I, I'd have to put it in the first class closet. So I went up to the first class closet and uh, I was putting it away and the stewardess was helping me and I, I asked her, because we were up in the first class and there was like only like eight seats and business had like 20 and there were barely anyone that was even there because they're all probably still in the lounge and I asked her, Do you, would you say there's a lot of competition at the top? A lot of competition at the top? And she said, yeah, a lot of competition at the top. I said, well, it doesn't appear that way on this airplane. It's practically empty up here. And there's only eight seats even if there were people up here. Twenty in business. And then I said, go look what's going on down there. We walked a little further to look at Coach. It was like a jungle. Don't forget, this is El All. People are almost punching each other out over the overhead compartments. Gentlemen, I'm sharing with you a secret about life and success here. Everyone's fighting over the back of the plane. All the competition is at the bottom. Because people are so afraid of failure that when they taste it once, they spit it out and never come back for more. And so all of this potential that's inside of each one of us to make great contributions to this planet, and even if you didn't make a great contribution with the work you did, you could at least make a ton of money and build shuls, support programs, help communities. But all of that does not take place because of a stupid wound of maybe you were a little kid in Haider. You probably don't even remember it. Little kid in Haider and you... It was your turn to read. You blew it. And some kid called you an idiot. And everyone laughed. And even the Rebbe laughed. But you failed. And now, how do you think you read the next time it was your turn? Wasn't getting better from there. The people in first class have learned to chew on the fact of failure. They're not letting a little kid govern the way they invest, the way they do business, the way they make deals. They are adults. And they fail. And they fail a lot. You know, they have signs all over Facebook, incorporated in Facebook. On the headquarters, there's signs all over the offices. It says, fail hard. Fail hard. You can go out there and fail hard. And the reason why they're pushing the edge of technology and social networking is because they fail. And they learn. Because failure is your greatest teacher. But what happens to the rest of us? We fail. We get that feeling, the salts in the wound, and we never come back for more. And then we go try something else. And if that fails, whoa, we'll try something easier and something easier. And after a while, we just are looking for the path of least resistance. There's a story, you probably know this famous fable of a, of a king who's walking through the forest with his men, his soldiers, 
and he sees that there are targets with arrows right in the bullseye. Exactly in the bullseye. One after the other after the other. So he tells him, go, men, find this archer. Bring him to me. And they find the archer and they bring him to the king and the king asks him, what's your secret? How do you do this? And the archer says, it's very simple. I pull back my arrow, I point it at the tree, I release my arrow, and then I take my paintbrush and I paint a target around it. That is most people's lives, including their marriages. It's most people's lives. We take the path of least resistance, and then we eventually paint a target around it and say that's what we wanted. Ain't nobody got time for that. And if you think you get to tell your story upstairs, not in the Olamayamis. In the Olamayamis, the only stories you would get to tell would be Emistic stories. And so the question really is, who are you? And that's what we're going to focus on. Because if you're not that story, think about this, gentlemen. You went through whatever you went through. You had your home, you had your circumstances. By the way, this is universal. I've never met a human being who doesn't have a story. Some people have rough stories, difficult stories. Some stories are actually horrific. I've heard some of the worst. But some of us have very subtle stories, like mine. I mean, I grew up in the wealthiest community, maybe on Earth, except for maybe in Dubai or something. I grew up in West L.A. in this super wealthy community. I was raised by two housekeepers from the jungles of Oaxaca, Mexico. And you should know I'm only froomed today because of it. Because I always noticed they were happier than my parents. And so I always knew that whatever it is my father was trying to impress upon me about money was not impressive when your housekeepers are happier than you. And they were living 6,000 miles away from their families, sending money home, working like dogs. And they were still happy. So I never really was impressed by Western society. I'm more of a Maccabi. Not impressed by the West. Hashem Sinura. But I was, why am I telling you about my upbringing? I was bubble wrapped in the wealthiest society. I was bubble wrapped. Nothing could go wrong. There wasn't a pedophile for nine zip codes. We had no rules. There was no rules at all. Like, I could come back, when I was 10 years old, 11 years old, I'd come back at 11, 12, 1, 2 in the morning. There were no rules. There didn't need to be. We were safe. And I'll tell you something. I've already discovered, I think, 25 super powerful core stories. And I'm still discovering them today. I had probably one of my biggest breakthroughs just two months ago when I discovered another story. A story about myself. That I'd been living 
And I, I had ultimately created a survival strategy that meaning a band-aid, my band-aid to survive it was something that was causing my whole family to be affected. The people at work, I teach at Eshet Torah, Yerushalayim, deeply affected. I daven at Pins Karlin, those people are scared to death of me. I'm the only Bal Tshuva in Pins Karlin, you'd think I'd be scared to death of them. But I've got everyone quaking in their boots, and they don't even wear boots. <laughs> but had I joined Square, they'd be quaking in their boots. <laughs> And I didn't even know it was there. Never knew it. Because it's a lens. As I spoke to you before, it's a lens that you're seeing the world through. So you don't even know you're wearing it. Anyone wearing glasses right now didn't even know you were wearing glasses. Now that you're thinking about it, you can see them. You don't know you're wearing this lens. You live it. That's why most people will live and die with their story that they can't tell upstairs. So who are you? Who are you? Because if you're not that story, which you cannot possibly be that story because it happened. And if you're not all those moves you made, all the ways you hold yourself back, or you push yourself forward and you're a bully like I was, a tyrant, as I was in my house and in my shul and in Eshatera. If you're not your story and you're not your personality, which is just a big fortress to cover up your story, so then what's the question, gentlemen? Who are you? Who are you? <laughs> he said the possible you. That's why the program is actually called the possible you. Who are you? Seriously, who are you? I'm asking you a real question. I mean, this isn't like uh, poetic. Who are you? Who can I count on here? Who are you? And I'm going to answer the question of who you are. Forgive me for telling you who you are. Because it's not usually nice to tell someone who they are. But I hope you'll forgive me. You are awesome. You're created You're created in the image of the creator of heaven and earth. Now, of course, the creator doesn't have an image. Ain't no goof, ain't no the moose goof. He's not a he's not made of any image. So what does it mean? Why does the Torah say we're made in the image of something that doesn't have an image? And the answer is that we're made. What does it mean you're made in the image of God? You're made in the image of the ten spheros that he created the world with. The entire nuclear power plant of creations inside of you. And that's why human beings are so creative. And why we're able to make, I mean, look where we are. We're in this structure of physics and engineering. and You have tremendous creative potential inside of you. A contribution to this planet unique to you. Different than your siblings, different than your neighbors, different than your work colleagues. You are powerful beyond belief. As Nelson Mandela, the Prime Minister of 
of uh, South Africa who spent the majority of his life in prison, but they say there was no one more free than him. He said, it's not that we're afraid we're small. It's that we're afraid we're very powerful. And we wouldn't know what to do with that power. You are so powerful. If I could just hook like a cable up to you, I could power old Muncie. want to know something else? I don't accept anything less than that. And what do I mean by that? I'm not saying you have to live up to anything for me. I don't care how you live. You can go right back to living the way you were living. I'll always see you as awesome. I travel. I teach all over the world. Everywhere I go, generally people pack in. And the reason they pack into the class isn't because of anything I'm going to say. It's only because of the feeling they'll have in my presence. Because I give them that. Because when you work through your garbage, suddenly you give everyone their tselamilukim. You see, you were given a brain but your brain is part of your nefesh Bahamas. You were given this massive neshama that's made of five parts in the highest world. Adam Kodmon is something called a yachida. In the world, meaning you're there. You're actually there in a world called yachida right now. But your brain's blocking it. You can't see it right now. You were given a Chaya, which is in the Oilam Ha'atzilis. You're there now. It is way bigger than any of the lower ones. You were given a Neshama, which is in the Oilam Ha'bariya, where the ten spheres separate from the oneness of Atzilis and actually distinct differentiate. You were given a Ruach, which is in the Oilam Ha'yitzirah, which is actually where you go when you, when you pass away. Which if you saw it right now for one second, if I could show you just one shot of it, as soon as we brought you right back, we'd lock you up in the funny farm. Because you'd be trying to eat your soup by putting the spoon in your ear for the rest of your life. And you're going there, by the way. You better get ready. You're going to be going there. Really intense there. Haven't seen it myself. <laughs> but uh, I know a little bit about it. It's intense. And you were given a nefesh. And that nefesh, each of those have levels. And the nefesh has levels. It's in Asiya. And it goes down and down and down and down in the world of Asiya. And that little white part of my fingertip where the fingernail comes off the skin that little white part, is the part that USB cable interfaces with your cerebral cortex, your brain. But you've been kidnapped because your neshama's been eclipsed by the brain. It's been covered up by thinking. 
you think 30, 40, 50,000 thoughts a day. Nine-tenths of those thoughts are so irrelevant. And if you're a smart person, one of these intellectual types, 9.9 tenths of those thoughts are irrelevant. <laughs> and it has ripped you away from your neshama. Because your mind is not your brain, not your neshama. It interfaces with it. Because your mind reports to it. Your mind reports to, the, to, your, to you, your awareness. You are not your mind. You are your neshama. And your mind reports, like right now it's reporting the words I'm saying are going in there. It's reporting that you're wearing clothes that are sheltering you, keeping you warm. The chair is supporting you. Your mind can compute those facts, but your mind reports to your neshama. You are neshama. And you are awesome. And you are beautiful. And you are me and I am you. And there is nothing else. Hashem, who is beyond all capacity of thought, infinite, has been orchestrating your entire life. Everything's covered. Everything's taken care of. He's got it all buttoned up. You notice that? That he's been orchestrating your entire life around you all the time? He's orchestrating people around you. I'll be walking to a store that's closed. I didn't know it's closed. And I run into someone they're like, Oh, Yom Tov, I needed you. Please, let me know. I need, tell me these numbers. I needed some kind of information. And I said, he said, Thank you, you're an angel. I, I don't know where you came from. <laughs> and then I walk another 20 feet to a store that's closed. Now, I thought I had free will. I thought I was free will trying to get to a store. But what was really going on was I was being orchestrated around this guy's life. All of us are being orchestrated by the Creator. You don't have to worry about it. You just do your best and He does the rest. I have another saying I like is, today's the day you were worrying about yesterday. So far, so good. When we're worrying about the future, it's a joke. It's more of your brain, because your brain goes everywhere but now. Your brain, all of the filters are all from when? The past. The way you filter the world, it's all from the past. Then your brain moves to the future. How am I going to deal with this? How am I going to do that? Hasanas, mortgage, work, health. What's going to be with the kids? When you get to here, right here, right now, gentlemen, to the awareness that is you. Everyone take your hands up for a sec. Go like this. Everyone just go like this. Okay, and you're going to, go like, you're going to say this. I'm the awareness of my thinking. I'm the awareness of my thinking. Hey, now you guys are starting to cooperate. You didn't, but everyone else did. <laughs> Let's go. Hands up. Come on, do it. Do it. Ready? Together. Together. I am the awareness of my thinking. Say, I am not my thinking. My thinking reports to me. The brain goes to the past. It goes to the future. The one place it doesn't go is to here. 
through here, right here, right now. In this one moment, where your awareness is, it's always been, and it will always be. He put chayoylam in us, because this awareness is there forever. It's always been there. Think about it. You've always had it. it never goes away. And it's going to be there when you pass away much stronger than here. Because right now your brain's in the way. Right now your brain's blocking the true awareness. And when you pass away, what they call brain dead, I know it's not supposed to be a good thing. At least for those who are still here, it's not a good thing. But for you, you'll be free. That's why we call it a hilula. Hilula means a marriage, a wedding. The Yortzeit's a hilula. Because this world is the divorce. So who you really are is awesome. You're amazing. And so I'd like to lead you guys, if we have a light switch, I'd like to lead you in a little uh, deeper experience. Just to play for you one song. You guys open to that? Play for you one song and get you in touch a little more. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm just letting you know that we do have limited space because, Baruch Hashem, the sign-ups have been overwhelming for the seminar on Sunday. But every single time I've done the seminar in Muncie, I've always taught here in this shul on the Thursday before. Yeah, turn off some and then get ready for all. Oh, you don't have all? Oh, really? Oh, man. Yeah, yeah, good. So, but turn that one back on so we have some light. To... So I always teach this class on Thursday night. And there's always been individuals in this class on Thursday night before I run the seminar on Sunday who said, who said, darn it, I'm going. I'm going to do the work. So I want each of you, even though I'm not speaking to you personally, I can speak to you a bit later. Though I have a meeting at 11 tonight. But, the, but that... Consider this a personal invitation to do the deepest work of your life. It literally transforms your life. Anyone who knows anyone who's done this work knows that it actually transforms your life. Don't wait. I come here once a year. And you know what happens every time I leave? I get like five months worth of emails saying, when are you coming back to Muncie? You blew away my friend. He's totally different. And I'm like, I have no idea when I'm coming back to Muncie. I don't even plan them. I wait till some macher plans it for me. In this case, it was an amazing guy. A guy named Barry. Betty. It's okay. He's probably resting from the exhaustion of organizing it. Anyway, consider it a personal invitation to come do this work. I just want to warn you that you have to have, um, because of the intensity of it, you do have to be a healthy person, uh, meaning uh, psychologically, emotionally. And uh, you also have to sign that you are. Um, you have to take full responsibility for your well-being. It is, you're literally giving birth to yourself. As I said before, everyone has to give birth twice. You're literally giving birth to yourself in this work. It's not easy. It's going to be one of the hardest times. It's beautiful. We laugh. We cry. We all get to know each other better than you ever got to know anybody. 
And don't worry about, by the way, don't worry about knowing people there. Everyone always comes up and what if I know somebody there? You know what I did once? I did it in the five towns because I got enough people saying, like, can you do it out of town? So I did one in the five towns, just in an obscure mansion, so that, you know, so the people who were like mashkichim and like, you know, like high-level people who just don't want to show up in such a thing with the people in Borough Park. Well, guess what happened? <laughs> the place was packed with people from Bar Park and, and Muncie and Phil Zobet. He was... <laughs> uh, by the way, anyone, if I have any graduates in the room, they can tell you about the seminar. I don't know if you would, because for me it's like, I don't want to be in sales, but uh, raise your hand. You know when I'll raise your hand? Okay. Thank you very much for all your courage. Um, the... <laughs> Sorry, but I'm sorry for pointing out. Um, no, there's a level of confidentiality. It's just that he raised his hand when I mentioned the word five towns. So, oh, by the way, it's a high level confidentiality. Nothing leaves the room. Whatever is shared in there stays in there. And don't think you have to share. I once had a, uh, I once had a minile of the biggest Talmud tire in Borough Park. He sat there with a hat, gargle, the whole time arms crossed, and he stared at me with this icy stare for hours and hours. And he didn't share, he didn't open his mouth the whole seminar. Everyone has chavrusas, he wouldn't talk to his chavrusas. On the third day of the seminar, second to last day, he goes into the chayda, and in the chayda, a kid was sent to him who got in trouble in class. And he comes in, like usual, scared to death of the principal. And the principal's sitting there and talking to him and asking him what happened, what, go, what happened in the class. And all of a sudden, the kid bursts out crying. It never happened in his career. He gets out of his chair, he comes around, sits next to the little boy, picks the little boy up on his lap and holds him. And he cries and cries. And eventually he starts talking about things that were going on in his home. Nothing to do with Kaidan. And he asked this kid, would you like to come back in three days? The kid's like... An hour later, another kid came in, got in trouble in class, burst out crying. He kept going like this throughout the day. He comes in that night to the possible you, and he sat there again. For hours. Didn't say a word to us comes back the last day of the seminar he goes first to the chayder and in the chayder the same thing happens the whole next day he comes back to us that night and then he finally opened his mouth he said Rabbi Glazer I don't know what you're doing here but something's transformed inside of me something vibrationally has shifted and I did not participate I was just in the room I called him half a year later he says I took my desk I put it against the window I now sit at a little round table with the children. I sit with the kids. And you want to know the biggest thing is he left the job. After several years, he left the, the Talmud Taya to go train, to get to a higher level of children's education. Because he never got his degree. You know how things are in Barber Park. <laughs> he went and got high level training. Not even to come back to there. He wants to open his own thing. He's a kid's manal.
and he never used to be. So nothing has to be shared. He didn't even share. And it's, even if you did share, nothing ever leaves. It's total confidentiality. And you don't have to worry about... People always say, oh, I don't want to know people in there. You know what happens if you know people in there? What happens is by the end, when we, we started off uncomfortable, we leave comrades, brothers in arms. And all of a sudden you found out that you have 30 teammates in Muncie. You have 30 teammates in Muncie that every time you see that guy, you're suddenly turbo boosted with the declarations you made about who you really are as a victory over some stupid story. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.